the talk tonight is about um, cultivating a wise and compassionate attunement to things as they are. I'd like to begin with a poem by a um, Bushman. And in their language, there's a lot of clicks that I can't say. So his name is something like Click Click Cabo. And the name of this is Click uh, XAM Premonitions. It was raining, just to say. The alphabet of the Bushmen is written in their bodies. The letters talk and vibrate. The letters move the body of the Bushmen. It orders everybody else to keep quiet. He himself is absolutely still. Then he feels his body softly palpitating on the inside. A dream talks false. A dream can mislead you. But the premonition talks the truth, the pulsing awareness which says, somebody is coming. Especially the pulse in a wound, and you walk and the wound begins to palpitate, then you can send the children to go and see Grandpa is in the footpath on his way to you. That is what you feel in the wound. The wound tells you that. Or if your ribs start palpitating, then you take your arrows because you feel the short black hair of the ribs of the springbuck if you climb Brink Hill. Watch closely among the trees and green spruits because the springbuck you have already seen with your body and you feel the sensation of blood on your thighs and calves as if you are already carrying the springbuck home on your back, as if the springbuck is already bleeding down your thighs. That is why I always wait silently for the words of my body. I feel it in my feet, how the animals are sniffing around the hut. I feel it at my skull, if they cut off the horns of the hartebeest. I get a sensation down my forehead all along my nose like the dark stain of the springbuck snout. I feel my eyes swelling out like the stains of the springbuck's eyes. When I feel something tingle like fleas, I know my body has seen an ostrich. We lie down in front of the huts. We lie down on the stretched out hills of Brink Hill. It looks as if we are sleeping, as if we are taking a nap. But we are reading our bodies. We read everything which is moving on the plains down below. The holes at the back of our knees get a feeling. And then we wait. And then everything comes to us. I think there's a lot in that poem that I um, definitely can't go into tonight. But I think that ending is really significant, you know, besides all the ways in which um, there's a description of there being such an awareness of body.
you know, and, and such a um, wordless awareness of body. Um, and then to the point of a description, if you, if you even take the metaphors of hunting for us as hunting spirit, or hunting the unconditioned, or hunting loving kindness, however you want to relate to that poem, the sense of um, being that awake, really awake, and then being able to wait and trusting that everything will come. And this is um, how we create a sanctuary within us. And, and, and I think that as we have a long retreat to share like we do, you know, just to imagine the sanctuary we're creating here and what we will bring out to the world. You know, that more you create sanctuary inside, the more you can really be a presence for other people to come to just like in this poem. You know, that it's just by your very presence, not by what you do, that brings about more wisdom and compassion. So it's the night of the second day of the retreat. It's a full moon, and it's raining. And I think we did so much metta that we brought in the gentle rain, <laughs> which is one <laughs> description of metta. is is It's like a gentle rain, but I think we may have may have overdone it. <laughs> so we're moving from you know the busy life that we often lead to a gradual letting go to the world of non-doing, and I think of this as. You know, if you walk along an empty beach and you just um, sense that as you walk, you start to just, the thoughts start to come and go, clear out, and you start to be able to hear the sound of the waves and the ocean. And then you start noticing that each wave comes and goes and that it's fresh. You know, it's alive, it's moving. And then that emptiness of the beach, that ability to see the wave come and erase everything is like being able to really listen to a breath come and go by itself. And so there's this centered attunement that starts to happen. And you know, it's really nothing that you're doing as much as the sense of really just attuning to a state of stillness and coming to stillness through the metta, through your body, through the breath, through sound through thought, through emotion. So, you know, as you go through the retreat, you'll learn to come to peace through fear, through anger, through loving kindness, through joy. So this infusion of peace, you know, in the heart, mind, body, is the actual sanctuary. I know there have been some, you know, confusion about the instruction around the metta because, you know, the Steve's instruction is really out of the suttas, which is really um, not the commentaries, but it's just that ability to drop in to the loving kindness. Um, And another way that I might describe that is, you know, like today, whenever it rains really hard, there's a stream nearby here that I like to go to visit just because I know it's just going to be flowing so beautifully, you know, at the peak 
of um, the rain. And one reason I like to do that is because I think of Vipassana practice as dropping into the stream of life. You know, and and we, we often can lose the thread of what Vipassana practice is, but the idea is that the truth of life is moment-to-moment change. And, and that, that we tend to resist that in so many different ways. And the resistance to that truth of change is, is suffering. So dropping into the truth of change is mindfulness practice. And you know what it feels like to drop into the stream of moment-to-moment bare attention. And you, we all know the suffering of resisting that. And it's the same with the metta practice, that on, on a deep level of truth, there's this loving kindness always here. And if we can, it's possible to drop into that loving kindness in a non-doing way. Hopefully we start to get the sense that we need to learn both ways, the ways of the commentaries and the ways of the sutta, that... Um, you know, skillful means in metta practice or vipassana practice is really doing what works for us and trusting that what works for us five minutes ago probably won't be working for us now. That's how quickly we need to shift skillful means. You know, it's a long day. You know, you do walking meditation and what worked this morning probably wasn't working at 6.15. It just can't. Zillions of hours has passed since 7 o'clock this morning. What works at the beginning of a sitting is not going to be working at the end of a sitting. The energy is going to be going... You know, the energy is constantly changing. And usually, depending on the energy being high or low, will be what kind of application (laughs) we need. So when energy is high and mindfulness is high, whether it's mindfulness of metta or mindfulness of moment-to-moment experience, the potential for us just dropping in is there. Dropping into the formlessness of practice. Either way, mindfulness practice or mindfulness of metta practice. Either way, when we're high energy, we're pretty much golden. Now, at the second night of the retreat, it probably isn't happening tons. You know, it's probably not... Peak experience is probably not 99% weather conditions, <laughs> you know, I think that it's probably, you're not even laughing. <laughs> it's a bad sign. <laughs> the second night of a retreat is usually when we're the most tired and tight. It's hard. And so, yeah, when we're tired, it's a very different practice than when we're high energy. High energy, we usually don't have to work as hard as it. It's like effortless and we can drop in easily. And when we're medium energy or low energy, we really need structure. We need form. And, you know, if you're new to the practice, really try to edge or (laughs) err on the side of learning what works for you. Structure, no structure. And then, you know, talk about it in interviews. On a long retreat, we all need the... um, spiritual friendship of fine-tuning. You know, that's why we have the interviews. Because, again, if we're growing and changing, what might have worked for you two years ago might be very different than what's happening now. It's because of change.
and hopefully growth. So in tonight's talk, I want to try to present a little bit more overview um, of the practice and um, a little bit more about why we started with three days of metta. Um, There's a great teacher who is dead now, but his name is Sri Nisargadatta, and he, he was from India. He wrote the book, I Am That, for those of you who are familiar with him. And he said something that for me has always been like, um, if you know, like a lighthouse. And the light just goes, and even if it's really foggy, you can navigate to that lighthouse. For me, this, this phrase is like a lighthouse for me. He said that love tells me I'm everything, and wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. And it, it's, it's, I think it's the most beautiful description of spiritual practice for any human being. And you can hear in that a, an equal valuing of love and wisdom. Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Um, and between the two, my life flows. So beginning with the metta practice was not to sort of push people to try to you know, crank it up for three days really strongly and, you know, get all tight (laughs) for three days trying to do the metta practice as much as really we're trying to to create an atmosphere of um, not using the mindfulness practice against ourselves. I had a really dear student friend that um, said that for 20 years he had done Vipassana practice and he'd never practiced metta And when he practiced metta for the first time, he said it was literally like having been standing in the sunlight for 20 years but not feeling any warmth. And that can happen. You know, it's like, it's just, it's easy culturally for us to do the mindfulness practice and just, you know, it becomes like a cold observation or a cold detachment rather than remembering that the uh, attention in mindfulness practice, we're really trying to connect to our experience before we don't cling to it. And we hear don't cling, and we tend to detach and not ever connect. And so anything that we can learn to do to balance that, which is really difficult, I'm not saying this is easy, but to learn how to connect, say, with fear, Um, or connect with the breath, or connect with the sound of the body, is really a kind of receiving of the experience. And if we're just kind of stepping back and coldly observing it, there can be, over, over days or years, a lack of warmth. And we lose that connection to love tells me I'm everything. And it's really not a balanced practice. And easy to do. I'm not saying that this, um, it's easy to, to have this perfection of balance or perfection of even valuing both. But it's something that we can um, aspire to.
in many ways I relate to the loving loving kindness practice um, as a way to heal any disconnect that we have from ourselves with ourselves or with ourselves and others. You know, and, and that's very profound. I don't mean this in any kind of New Age kind of a psychological way. I think the Buddha taught this. Um, it's a very old tradition. It's a very ancient tradition. And some of the images that I've read in, in the text um, have made a huge impact on me in terms of my understanding of what healing disconnect really means and how that also affects the mindfulness practice. Uh, so his, his image of the experience of loving-kindness is a mother cow. Now just really think about it because, again, the, the poem that I began with, I began with it for a reason. There was such an emphasis on the attunement to body. And the Buddha used an image of a cow rather than a human being to really get the point across about what this, this experience of loving-kindness is. And he said that it was the moment, the moment that the mother cow gives birth and looks into the eyes of the mother cow, I mean, in the eyes of the baby cow, that, that it's that moment of connection that is loving-kindness. It's, it's amazing. You know, it's just, it's so profound, and it's so for pro- profound for us culturally. And so what he's teaching is that we can learn, we can heal any disconnect that we have with ourselves through this practice of loving-kindness, whether it's with fear or with anger or sadness or disappointment or loneliness or betrayal or with our body, with aging, with whatever, that um, if we're doing the mindfulness practice and we can't be mindful, it's usually because there's a very deep learned resistance to that experience and that it's our, our conditioning is to disconnect. Uh, and so this ability to bring in this care, whether it's compassion, whether it's caring about the pain, which is a flavor of metta, but it's just a little bit different. It's just really caring about pain, or just that wishing well. Metta is the wishing well, very pure. And, and so the Buddha is teaching that we can relate to ourselves like a newborn. You know, even the most staunch, hard, tough person, you put a little baby in their arms, they kind of melt, yeah? I mean, maybe we don't know what to do if we've never held one before, but usually we're going, oh, gaga, goo goo. You know, you see us with a dog or a cat or even, you know, look at us with the chipmunks out there. You know, we just melt. You know, it's just like, what is that? It's that it's the connection to the heart, and it it um, we don't have to be born with this. I, I feel that if I can heal this, anybody can. You know, I was born dead. <laughs> My mother was born, was dead when I was born. She had a very difficult life. You know, she basically drank herself to death. That that disconnect for me was is huge, and it's something I work with daily. 
And I've seen myself change tremendously in this practice of loving-kindness, you know, healing that disconnect from myself. So, and I don't say that lightly. It, I, it took and takes a lot of patience. But I see, like, going from zero to 100% in a, you know, some time. But it, it's, it's a great practice. We often have a lot of questions about loving-kindness, and I think I'm just trying to, again, just give an overview, not a whole meta-talk. Um, but don't forget that um, we each have the mother or father cow in us, and we each have the baby. And when, when we're concentrated in either practice, metta or mindfulness practice, when we're concentrated, those two attentions are together. And when we're unfocused, they're not together, and we're not here. So when we bring those together, it's like, how do you send metta to yourself? Who's sending it to who? Check it out. Don't take my word for it. But there's two different kinds of attention that are coming together. And they come together whether we're paying attention to a sound or the breath or ourself with ourself, or self with another. It's like, I can do it visually for you. You know, John Lennon said it great, you know, come together. <laughs> you come, come together. And a deep samadhi, deep concentration, is when we feel perfectly put together. And there's just this perfection of stillness, and there's no sense of duality. Again, that can happen in either practice. And there's that perfection of stillness, balance, and contentment because there's no sense of separation or duality. You'll know when you feel that. You'll know when you feel that the mother cow or father cow and baby calf have come together. And you know when you feel that, like when you take the benefactor or you take a chipmunk. You know, see when you have that feeling of, ah. Sometimes it's very quiet. Metta doesn't have to be a big, huge thing. It can be incredibly quiet feeling, a light whisper. One of our intentions for teaching the loving-kindness is that we can, um, it helps melt resistance to how things are. You know, so that's, that's the most important one, is that the mindfulness practice is being with things as they are. And when we can kind of bring that, ah, it's okay. You know, I'm really bored. (laughs) You know, I can't wait till this Dharma talk is over. The knee pain is just unbelievable. You know, whatever it is, it's, it's okay. You know, just that, just that real softness that helps us. It's melting us into how the truth of things. That's the major reason why we're teaching it here the first few days. The other thing also to remember with the loving kindness is that um, in the way that Joseph described them coming together for Deepama, um, there, 
we can talk about self-centered love or attached love as being you know, so similar to the experience of loving-kindness, but it isn't. It's not that we're saying romantic love is wrong or attached love is wrong. It's saying that it isn't this um, love of loving-kindness. And so loving-kindness literally assumes that there's understanding in it. Loving-kindness is love with understanding. Compassion is caring about the, the pain in the world with understanding. Mudita, or empathetic joy, is appreciating the joy in this world with understanding. And, and so the, the way these practices complement each other is that the more loving-kindness we develop, the more that softens the wisdom. And the more wisdom developed, the more it purifies the loving-kindness. So they end up, they just keep purifying themselves until really, literally, there isn't any separation. The awareness is um, warm. The other um, part of this um, phrase by Sri Nisargadatta, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. So love tells me I'm everything... Culturally, we tend to like that, right? We like the idea of melting into the universe, you know, and it, and there being this oneness. Concentration practice leads to that. It leads to a feeling of oneness. It leads to a le- le- feeling of tranquility. The wisdom practice um, doesn't necessarily feel good or feel comfortable initially. Its wisdom tells me I'm nothing. You go out in the street and you tell somebody that, they might go, oh, that doesn't sound like I want to sign up for that. Yeah, I mean, it it doesn't sound that great to most people. But again, if you have a preference for it, usually I find that there are those who have a preference for love tells me I'm everything. And they're more picky about love. uh, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And there are others that wisdom tells me I'm nothing kind of feels great, and the love tells me everything is less attractive. Um, We're not usually born in balance with this. I would like to go into the um, details about this in a little while in this talk, but just generally speaking, another way to try to describe this is that um, because everything is changing, nothing is worth being attached to. And um, because everything is changing, our attempts at control are aversion and attachment. So it's, it, it's like to try to understand that our attempts to control or manipulate life are understandable, but as you go into retreat, we're going to hit layers and layers and layers of seeing our own aversion and attachment and the idea is that we feel the pain of it and that that is the suffering that ends suffering, is, is being willing to face how and why we suffer and that, that that defense system that we learn as children, it's very thick conditioning, but we can cut through it. We can get liberated. And, and, you know, and if you start to think that, I, oh, I want to do that for 24 hours, 
you know, and we bear down and try too hard, that doesn't usually work. But if you think, oh, in the next moment, let me see if I can cut through conditioning, usually we can, if we just limit it to one moment and take one moment at a time. It's really possible when we, when we relate to uh, time in that way with this practice. And also with the love and the wisdom, the love tends to be a kind of ground that, again, culturally is very important for us because the wisdom practice leads to a groundlessness. You know, that um, <laughs> it's wonderful. Groundlessness is wonderful. And when the culture has no love in it, it can be, you know, not so easy to go back into. So that warmth, again, culturally is essential. This um, summer, I was teaching a weekend in, on the Big Island of Hawaii, and I, when I flew into the island, I, because of airline restrictions in summer, I had to fly into the opposite side of the island where I was doing the retreat and had to rent a car. Um, but they let me return the car in the Hilo airport, which was the other side of the island, uh, and I had this dinner date with these, this very um, important Native Hawaiian group that I wanted to meet and had this airline crunch. Um, and I didn't know the Hilo airport very well. And I just assumed, you know, small Hilo airport, I should snap, right? So I didn't allow time for really learning the airport. So I, like, I went into it and I was rushing and I just thought, you know, it's a, it's a little circle. How could I get lost? But I <laughs> got lost twice. And it was really, I was going to miss the plane, and it was a plane to um, California to teach at Spirit Rock. And I just, I just, you know when time just gets really limited and you just start to get really uptight? And I was so mad at myself um, for not being able to find my way. And the whole, all the thought process was that I should be able to find my way because it's just a small airport. You know, it was just, I left no room in my mind that learning is okay and that learning takes time. So, like, I just, like, got to this place where I pulled over the car and I was like, ah, <laughs> I'm going to miss the airline and I hate myself. And then it was like, oh, meta. You know, it's just like, it's so interesting, but I've done so much of this practice. It's just, oh, ha, 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 it's okay. You know, it's like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> you know, you know, and it just, for me, it always comes down to that place that learning usually requires mistakes, what we call mistakes, you know, but it, you know, it's like that perfectionism for me, that, that thinking that I have to do it perfectly right away and not leaving time for you know, the mistakes, uh, so-called mistakes, is so profound. And I have found the metta practice so important. You know, seeing that I could go two hours hating myself in the past for something like that, that it can, can shift in seconds, is, is just, again, a big one. You know, but it's not always like that. I'd like to describe another one that was harder, but it was, it's a similar one um, in that it's how I relate to... Um, perfectionism. 
uh, when I went to Burma this winter, um, I had missed three years because of a death in my family each year. And it luckily it just so happened that Steve Smith didn't get his visa again. He got it again for three years and then lost it. So luckily, my family <laughs> my family held out this year. Nobody died. It was great. <laughs> I really appreciated it. <laughs> uh, so I was really looking forward to going back. I just. I just was so excited. And there's a cook at Chaswa Monastery where we teach a retreat um, that my, um, my, my name that I gave him, you know how we get Burmese names or Asian names? I gave him a name, but he doesn't know it. His name is God. <laughs> I thought if he got the name, he might get inflated or something. So, But he just, he, he's, his name is God because I feel like he acts out sujata, like I was describing the other night in the renunciation talk, his purity of heart around dana in terms of cooking for us is, is something I've never seen before. You know, it's just like, um, it really has taught me everything about the, um, what I understand the staff are doing here for us. Or when I was on staff, I felt that that was deep in me from other lifetimes, but I didn't really, I couldn't name it or name how utterly important um, that dependency we have on the staff is and how our realization is dependent on their giving to us. It's like I, I felt a, t- a direct transmission from this cook with this. You know, and it, it was such a gift um, for me in terms of my understanding of realization and Buddhism in this practice. Um, so I wanted, <laughs> of course you can hear, I wanted to bring him something special. And that desire to bring him something special, of course, was a setup, right? I just, I was very attached to bringing him something that he would really like. And I had asked people to find out, and he, he plays the violin. And in fact, I brought him a violin maybe four years ago. Um, so he had asked for some... See, I still, I don't, I'm not very good with mechanical things, and he asked for some sort of hookup for the violin that made it kind of play over loudspeakers or something. Um, and I had a couple people help me pick it out in Honolulu, and I was just really happy. I had this thing and, and got there, and I heard that it was the wrong thing. And I was just devastated. And I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't, I was so devastated, you know, for three weeks when I was there, I wanted to give it to him, but I didn't, you know. And so I was just waiting and waiting. And um, one day I finally had a translator come and just bend over backwards explaining to him how mortified I was and how sorry I was, but here it was. And he's just sitting there waiting for this thing. It was really funny. And so... Um, he speaks a little English, and he'll bring it out in times that'll surprise me. And he, you know, so I, it was like I gave it to him because in Burma also, there's been a way that I've seen in the schools in the you know first grade, second grade, kindergarten. Whenever if you give a pencil, 
the teacher stops the class and really makes the children receive it and really makes a ceremony out of it. And it's just wonderful. You know, it's, I've learned so much even from giving a pen in the school or, or a globe for the school. It's like there's just this appreciation of giving that the children learn by osmosis and it brings a lot of happiness. So giving a gift there is a big deal and you spend time giving it and you know it's received in a way that's important you know so here I was you know and I offered it and he knew how upset I was and he said oh he opened it and he said oh Michelle it's such a good mistake just so beautiful, you know. Just, I remember that now whenever I feel like I've really made a mistake. It's like, oh, Michelle, it's such a good mistake. <laughs> Can you relate to times in your day here like that? You know, this is important. You know, this is why we're learning the metta. When you're falling asleep, for whatever it is, it could be restlessness. I mean, it's usually one of the hindrances that, you know, is just oppressing us, you know, just restless for the 50th time or sleepy for the, you know, how many times or certain pain in the body or whatever, karmic knot. It's like being able to just be grateful for the pattern because that's our greatest teacher. Any aversion or attachment you're having to anything that's happening is your teacher for getting liberated with aversion and attachment. And it doesn't matter what the experience is. And that's what's so um, elusive (laughs) about the practice, is that we forget that what we're experiencing doesn't matter. It's how we're relating to it that matters. Over and over again, that's what we learn in the Vipassana practice. And again, if we take out the whip and we whip ourselves with self-judgment because we're making an interpretation about ourselves that's negative because of what we're experiencing, say, sleepiness or, or boredom or whatever, oh, it's, it's, you, we all know it. We just we get miserable. It's torture. And the metta practice then is so important. And, uh, you know, I think that, for me, this is a good example of how we make an interpretation about our experience uh, in terms of um, how we feel about life. Um, One of the first times I met my great-niece, who was um, five now, but she was four at the time, um, I was doing some painting with her. She was doing some watercolor stuff on the kitchen table, and her mom was off kind of cooking, and uh, she did a really beautiful picture. I mean, I, you know, since then I've seen that she's just really good at painting, and she just did this beautiful picture, but I didn't know her very well, so I was like, oh, that's so beautiful. It's just like, I just loved it so much, and she gave it to me, and she said, oh, she looked at her mother, and her whole body gets involved with happiness. You know, she's just like... I really, really love myself. (laughs) You know. (laughs) And she just runs around, you know. 
I really, really love myself, you know. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just like that childlike, you know, ability to be transparent, yeah? And how much do we do this, right? You know, we're having a good sitting. Oh, I really, really love myself. You know, that's what, that we're making an interpretation, right, about our experience. And then I was with, just after we finished painting, and she was loving herself so much, yeah. And we went upstairs and we were playing hide-and-seek with her brother, who's, who was eight at the time, and they have a lot of sibling rivalry, you know, and something happened, and I had to really take her aside and tell her, you know, this wasn't okay, and she had to share, and blah, blah, blah. And she went zooming into the bed, you know, slammed the door, you know, jumped on the bed, was screaming and crying, and, I, you know, I went in, and, and she's like, I hate myself, I hate myself more than you'll ever know, you know, just like, just... <laughs> <laughs> this was five minutes later. You know, but I bet you've seen yourself do that today. You know, it's just, we might not be so transparent, but wait, say, you know, we just are having something happen that we don't like. And this is the crux of the Buddhist teaching that I have found so important, is that it's, it's that you're learning that it, you're, you can... Develop a happiness and peace that's not based on experience. You know, and this is why a Vipassana retreat is designed like it is. If we were going for a peak experience, we would get up at 10.30 and we'd be done at lunch. (laughs) If you're a morning person. You know, if you're an evening person, you'd probably be getting up at 3.00 you know, having a cup of tea, you know, and then, you know, maybe from four to five we'd be sitting. But this is just the opposite. We're, you know, it's designed so that you go through every possible human experience. It's designed so that you go through every imbalance of energy. So that what? So that we learn to bring wisdom and compassion to every possible human experience. Painful, pleasant, neutral, again and again and again. And the, the beauty and the nobility of a long retreat is that a long retreat is how we develop equanimity. And you can rush or try to fiddle with the other factors of enlightenment. You know, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, calm, concentration. You know, those can be fiddled with a bit, but equanimity... You can't fiddle with it. You just have to put in your time. You have to go through getting attached to experience and letting it go again and again and again so that when sleepiness arises, we don't take it personally. When anger arises, we don't take it personally. We, we connect with it and we let it come and go by itself. You know, so this is wisdom practice. And it's very beautiful. There's a great nobility to it. And just just keep in mind that the mind can be very fickle in relationship to experience. Uh, There's a great saying by, I forget which Zen patriarch, but he said, um, the great way is easy for those who cease to cherish their opinions. So it doesn't mean that we don't have opinions, but that the great way is easy 
for those who cease to cherish their opinions. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's so much of the practice, is that gradual erosion of identification with thought. And the erosion of our belief in our judgments. You know, I mean, we're, humans are judging machines. You know, if you just listen to all of our minds on a tape, you know, day after day, it would be like, you know, just listen for an hour. Just listen to the constant little commentary. I like this. I don't like that. Well, that was okay. You know, it's just like this commentary, you know. And if you can just kind of let yourself listen to it without judging it and just start not worrying about the words but coming to stillness through it, it's not a problem. It's just this... It's like the mind is like a child that wants your attention. And if you give it this loving kindness and wisdom and you just let it be, it's fine. We're totally fine just as we are. No need to change anything. I taught a 10-day retreat on the vineyard um, in May, and it was for um, a group of people mostly in their 20s. Um, And it was the first time we did something like this. And six of us went early to try to set the place up. Somebody gave us this big house um, for 10 days to do a retreat. So six of us went three days early to set up this retreat. Um, and I, I decided that we should do it all by consensus, and I didn't want to run anything. I just wanted to be part of everything. Um, but it was a lot of discussion and a lot of work. Uh, and the biggest decision was where we were going to have the meditation hall. Um, and we could have had it in the dining room, or living room, dining room, but it was right next to the kitchen. And then there was this porch with screens, but it could get very cold outside. And then there was this little playroom, but it had a pool table. And, <laughs> you know, there was always, you know, there was always something good and not good about each place. Um, and we all had a lot of opinions about this. Um, so what we decided to do, even though it was going to take time, is that we decided to sit for 45 minutes in each room and take a break in between. And it turned out at the beginning of um, going into the porch that, there were th- actually, it turned out that there were three men and three women, and the three men wanted the porch really strongly, very identified. This was it. This is how we should do it. And the three women were like, absolutely not. It's too cold. We're not going to do it. We wanted to be in the um, living room. I mean, and it was just amazing. We were just really sure. And we were sure that when we tried it out, all of us were sure that the other people were going to swing over to their side, and it was going to be a a cinch. You know, it was so obvious that we were right, right? You know, I mean, it was so obvious. And so we head out into the porch, and one one of us was a monk, you know, and he had his robes in a way that his arm was a little exposed. And there's ticks on the vineyard. There's a lot of lime ticks. And we never thought that they could get in the porch. And I don't even know if they did. But so we're sitting there, and I could see (laughs) Usumina kind of, you know, noticing this tick walking up his arm. And then, <laughs> and he put it, he, he got up, put it outside, sat down. And then 
I started, I was like on the side of really being sure it should be in the living room, right? And I started listening to the birds, and uh, it was just the sound of the wind, and I completely switched my mind over. I was sure we should be in the porch. You know, and <laughs> it was amazing. And so like at the end of 45 minutes, we all got together, and the three women all wanted to be in the porch. <laughs> And we were sure it should be in the porch. And the three men all wanted to be in the living room. <laughs> it was just, isn't that amazing? I mean, you know, it was just like, ah, uh, you know, just, just us humans, you know. <laughs> we had to, then we sat in the playroom and we, we all decided to be in the playroom. <laughs> the happy ending. <laughs> so... The great way is easy for those of us who cease to cherish our opinions. Um, And that's very deep. You know, it's like in these first three days of the retreat, if you feel like the metta is too hard and you'd rather be shifting right into Vipassana, just do it. Just bring in a little bit if you want. You know, and then if if you're really enjoying the metta, just go for it. You know, just try to be light with this beginning of the retreat and try to begin with an atmosphere of um, as much relaxation as you can. You know, I really advise just punching in, punching out. And my criteria really, criteria for everybody doing okay is I look out and you're still here. You know, I mean, that's, it's, it's just that shift into being here in a long retreat is a lot and you're doing great. And it's great to be here with you. So let's sit for a few minutes. Just see if you can let the self-assessment tapes come and go by themselves, not buy into them too much. Let the resistance be okay to how things are. And use whatever skillful means you have to do the best you can to be here with as much love and wisdom as you can. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.